0: This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand
2: Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metro podcast. I'm John, and this week. We are going to talk about the end of the world. Let's put it that way. Uh, for, for this cheery episode, I'm joined by uh, my colleague, India Bork. Our, our, uh, you're sort of our environment correspondent, aren't you? Yes, hello. <laughs> Which You chose that as your specialism. You decided that the, the thing you would like to be writing, spending your life writing about is... The imminent death of humanity and possibly all life on it. I mean are you, are you particularly depressed that day? Or?
3: No it does feel appropriate this week though with us both being both being pretty sick in the office for different reasons. Yeah, it's,
2: uh, yeah everyone in the office right now is particularly but you know we're, we're, we're going to work through that despite you know that's our, our commitment to, to podcasting is such that we're not going to let some, some cold stand in the way we're of
3: containing our germs yeah. in the podcast room. Yeah
2: so so the reason we decided to to do a climate change special is because there have been well okay let's phrase this as a question it feels to me like there have been an unusually high number of extreme weather events recently is is that is that definitely true or is this just like are we just more aware of things than we would have been in the past
3: So yes, there is evidence to suggest that extreme weather events are getting more frequent. So obviously, we've always had big storms, hurricanes, floods, back to biblical times, very well documented. But the frequency and the extent of their impact is is much greater now due to human-caused climate change. It's just completely changing the way these things are operating.
2: So there was that moment a couple of weeks ago where I think there were three hurricanes in the Caribbean at the same time, which is, that's that's pretty rare, isn't it?
3: It was very rare. I mean, each event, you've probably been watching it on the news too, I was glued to the screen where as Hurricane Armour. Approached, um, came across the Caribbean and approached the coast of Florida. And it seemed to that it was almost 24 hour round the clock coverage of it, um, which did become very, very addictive. But yes, each one of those hurricanes has has broken records. So, first of all, there was Harvey who hit Houston and Texas. And that was it. I like
2: the way we're going with who there. It's like we're really sort of leaning <laughs> into the, giving them individual identities. But yeah, sorry, sorry, I shouldn't interrupt. <laughs>
3: There is actually a proposal to start naming the, these hurricanes after climate change deniers. So the <laughs> Koch brothers hu- hurricane, which yeah. is quite a nice idea. But um, they're already spreading so, so, enough so. devastation on. So Harvey hit and it was the wettest tropical storm on US record by the time at it hit Houston. Dumped a hell of a lot of water on the city. Then you had Irma, which was the longest lasting Category 5 hurricane on record. And then um, Maria, who just hit... I do say who, don't I? That's very which probably better. <laughs> um, which hit Puerto Rico? It was a Category Four hurricane, but it was the fastest uh, one of or one of the fastest storms to intensify from a Category One to a Category Five over the fa- past few days. So each of these storms is just breaking records. So you get someone like Trump saying, "Oh, they're not so big." Or we we've always had big storms. Yes, you have always had big storms, but just the the magnitude of of the whole picture is is quite something.
2: It's interesting what you say about watching it on on television because you know we we did that at home. It's quite weird when you think of like you know catastrophic weather events becoming a form of entertainment. But there's definitely an element of
3: that, isn't there?
2: there is something so weirdly addictive about. It. Yeah,
3: so interesting. I I was a completely hooked. I found myself with a kind of ethical theoretical problem, which was obviously you want the hurricane to cause least devastation as possible. for for the sake of the people involved but on the other hand you really wanted trump to get the picture that something needs to be done about climate change (laughs) um
2: yeah i mean i think if there is a way of kind of short-circuiting that ethical dilemma i think it's maybe that I, I can't quite imagine how bad things would have to be to persuade Donald Trump he'd been wrong about something. I just don't think a, a disaster of that level exists,
3: I think it's... Sadly, I think you're completely yeah. right.
2: Interesting, like, watching these reporters standing in reasonably peaceful streets, the eye of the storm, and like, the wind gradually getting up as they... as as the kind of... the hurricane moves over them again. Have you ever been in a hurricane?
3: I haven't. Have you? Nearly. No way. Yeah. Wait, when?
2: Uh, 2012 it would have been, which I only remember because I remember sending a grumpy tweet saying that I appear to be in the in the direct path of the hurricane, but on the upside, so was Mitt Romney, because the Republican convention up in Tampa, just up the Florida coast was, was on target as well. No, it missed in the end, but we were kind of stuck inside for two days while well, it was oh, no. just a reasonably nasty rainstorm. What did you a, do? Uh, I think we watched a, a box set of Aaron Sorgans in the newsroom. <laughs> um, but it's like, it was quite... It it was kind of like the sort of Disneyland version of the hurricane you kind of go out and get blown around a bit but reasonably occasionally like you know one of the pool chairs would fly
3: past or something but you know
2: you were never in any actual danger so you kind of feel like you got the hurricane experience without ever actually taking any risks.
3: That's so interesting you say it's like the Disneyland experience because I've heard on the radio recently a few people say it's like being in a film and actually I interviewed someone who was in a Uh, experienced a very bad wildfire in portugal earlier this year and again they compared it just in telling me their story like you said it was like being in a film that made me think it's so interesting we're so used to the disaster films which are very simplistic narratives where it's really concentrated on the immediate event so you know it does seem to be quite similar to the experience but it also allows the experiences to be very neatly tied up in a kind of filmic beginning middle end And we like that as humans. We like being able to tie things up in neat boxes, Janice.
2: I guess also this kind of there's a sort of distancing effect in the kind of cinematic way of seeing these things where you kind of imagine them as I mean you said beginning, middle and end, but you do kind of think about the immediate event rather than long term causes or long term impacts.
3: Exactly. Yeah. And it's not just
2: a matter of like surviving these things or like imagining well we've done that, that's that's done now. Because if an area is particularly prone to hurricanes or storm surges or whatever it may be that's probably this is not gonna be a one-off right like there's gonna be another one somewhere down the road so why has climate change made extreme weather events like this more more common
3: so analysis from uh, carbon brief suggests that 63% of all extreme weather events studied to date have been made more likely by human caused climate change for hurricanes, that's because warmer seas evaporate more quickly and warmer air holds more vapour. So for every half degree Celsius in warming, the atmosphere can hold about 3% more moisture. So that's that's how hurricanes work.
2: Yeah, we're kind of focusing a bit on on hurricanes here because, well, again, probably because of the pictures, really. But that's not <laughs> the only the only form of extreme weather events that we're we're seeing.
3: Not at but, all. Right. So you've got the wildfires. Los Angeles has seen its largest bushfire in history. A million acres have been burned in Montana. According to one study, uh, the total area burned in the Western US over the past 33 years was double the size it would have been without climate change. You even had wildfires in Greenland. Um,
2: Greenland? It surprises me that it's Greenland because it's like imagining an ice storm in, in like Lagos or something. It just doesn't fit with your, your mental picture of it, does it?
3: Not at all. And it's particularly worrying in places where there's a lot of methane in the permafrost to be released just to make you even more worried
2: (laughs) so something that we we've almost talked about a number of times on this podcast but we never we never actually got there because every time I tried Stephanie would start making squeaking noises and demand we talk about something else is the fact that the arctic didn't really freeze last winter did it where's that fit into the picture
3: arctic melt saw the summer ice cap fall to well below average I think but it, it was about the eighth lowest on average and as we've seen in the press this week if things don't aren't always the most or the biggest then people start to assume climate change isn't that bad but the trends are very clear there's always going to be fluctuation within a trend within a trend bracket but you know that bracket sadly is is not going
2: so the point is that you know if you get the second worst event ever then we don't hear about it so much when in fact it's still it's still pretty bloody awful at that point right so why did you why did you find it so addictive to watch exactly?
3: There's definitely the rolling news element of it. It was a something that was approaching. You knew was going to happen. You wanted to find out what was going to happen next. And there was something addictive, I think, about the immediate experience of it. So people who were there have talked about experiencing it l- like a film. Simultaneously, people around the world are literally watching it unfold on the TV screens. But there's also when when you turn something into a spectacle it becomes easier to grasp it, if you think of the classic disaster movies they follow a very predictable arc beginning middle end you know the rising tension the drama then the, then the the conclusion is always kind of a wrapping up it's always saving the day and that's something I think Donald Trump really understands, and that's why he was keen to like big them up beforehand and say, "Oh, they're the yeah, what did he say? He said something like, a, um, I think of Harvey. He said even experts have said this is never. They've never seen one like this. Oops. Really, bigging up the drama so that he could like sw- he was talking about his
2: electoral college majority again. Basically, it's the
3: same <laughs> register, wasn't it? Exactly, So he could swoop in and be everyone's savior, um, and. And that just doesn't work when you're trying to tell us... Well, well, when you're telling the story of climate change.
2: I, I found it quite interesting to... I mean, just on a certain basic human level, it's just quite funny watching reporters get blown around.
3: <laughs> Did like,
2: you... Or, you know, just like <laughs> clinging to trees or something. You can tell they're just desperately on the producer if they can go inside now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's true. I hope someone had coffee on hand for them. One of the most things that I think will stay with me from from the coverage of it... Was the reports of people in Florida shooting at the storms? <laughs> did you hit? Did you read that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was. No, I wasn't sure if this was a parody or a joke or what. Because I mean, you just think like, if there's like a 180 mile an hour wind coming towards you, probably what you don't want to do is give it bullets. But... <laughs> it's
3: true. Apparently, they they were showing warnings that they could come back and hit people. But the yeah, I would think yeah, <laughs> yeah, you would think, but the thing that really struck me about it so at first you're kind of like oh oh no it's just americans being complete gun gun happy again but then you also think well actually it's a sign of desperation a lot of people a lot of gun owners live in quite deprived areas in america and if you're shooting into a storm as a way to stop it, it just means you're out of control it's like it's like a helpless thing really and that is the that is the real problem of these storms is that they do disproportionately impact people on low income so the result of Hurricane Irma has hit hardest elderly people in care homes where the power ran out, people on low incomes who get pushed close to the edge of being able to cope because maybe their maybe their means of business has been hit or or even um they can't go to work because everything's shut and they don't get their paycheck and, and and then obviously around the world developing countries are also going to be hit really hard so it's it is a tale of two storms.
2: So sometimes when we talk about this stuff I get the sense that we we talk too much about how it's affecting the developed world and not enough about how it's affecting the developing world or it's I think it's probably having rather more of an impact so you've been speaking to someone about that.
3: Yes I spoke to someone called Dr Salim or Huck who is the director of the International Centre for Climate Change and Development at the independent university of bangladesh and so he does a lot of work with the international community in building negotiating capacity and supporting developing countries in adapting to climate change
2: so he's really on the front line of this one in in two ways at least
3: exactly yeah it's that time of the year
0: your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves
3: work as the director at the International Centre for Climate Change and Development at the Independent University of Bangladesh. That's correct. And you've worked at the International Panel on Climate Change as a lead author. And you're working in Bangladesh right now?
4: Correct, yes. I I used to be based in London. I was with an institute there called the International Institute for Environment and Development, IIED in London. So I I used to run the climate change program there for many years. I've become what they call a senior fellow. So I'm now based in Bangladesh.
3: Were you there during August when the news the one of the heaviest monsoons in in 30 years, hit, hit the city and swept across Southeast Asia? That's correct. What is the experience of that like on the ground?
4: Well, it's, it's, uh, been extremely, um, uh, traumatic and, and uh, difficult for the people that have been hit. It's not been something that is unexpected because the rains and the uh, flood started in Nepal upstream in the river Ganges and then it traveled through India, through Bihar and then arrived in Bangladesh. So we knew it was coming for a number of days. So the, the number of deaths in Bangladesh are relatively few because people were able to uh, get out of harm's way themselves. But the devastation in terms of crop damage in particular and also other kinds of infrastructure uh, has been quite severe. Uh, People have lost their houses, their homes, their crops. Uh, They're now living in embankments and and, uh, making do on higher ground.
3: And the monsoons obviously happen every year but is this damage This is more a extensive? particularly
4: bad one, yes, exactly. I mean, we're used to monsoons. So this is not uh, unexpected but this one was a particularly bad one and hence the previous precautions that have been taken were not sufficient. They breached the embankments and, and flooded areas that would not normally have been flooded.
3: How much of that is due to climate change? So, has anyone been able yes. to, to well, comment
4: the, on attributing, that? Yeah. attributing a single event to climate change is a very risky thing. I don't think many climate scientists who who study the uh, you know the frequency of events and the global modelers uh would be very comfortable attributing this particular event because of climate change but i think where the attribution is more robust is that this kind of magnitude of event which is a 1 in 50 year event has happened already several times in the last 20 years let alone 50 years and that is the kind of thing that climate change models do predict will happen. These abnormal events are not likely to remain abnormal anymore. They may become the new normal.
3: And is this new normal, as you put it, is this something that is possible to prepare for in the future in places like Bangladesh?
4: Yes. Well, yes and no. I mean, there are, there are limits to how much we can prepare and adapt. I would say Bangladesh is is relatively well adapted to flood. So what the farmers uh, living in the villages will do is they build their houses on raised uh, hillock. They will grow a crop of rice which ripens and can be harvested before the floods begin. Unless they come very early, which happens again sometimes. As the water starts to rise, they'll, they'll harvest the rice. The land will get inundated and it becomes like a vast sheet of water with uh, habitation islands in between. They'll then take out their boat and they'll go fishing. So that's sort of the, the adaptation, the harmonious adaptation of, of living and livelihoods of the people in Bangladesh for centuries. Now, what has happened in the meantime is two things. One is, We have intervened in many of the areas to try and prevent the floods from coming in by building embankments. And these embankments but are now being breached more frequently, and and that's what's happened this time. So the question now is, should we build higher embankments to protect us from the bigger floods or just give up altogether and let the the land get flooded? And this is something that is, is a bit of a debate. My position is that the, in the rural areas, it has actually been a mistake to try and prevent flooding from taking place. It's better to let the, the river flood and that what that does is allows the floodplain to be replenished. But when it comes to protecting infrastructure where we will, we've built cities and towns, that is not a viable proposition. There we do have to protect them. We, we build uh, dikes around them to protect uh, the the infrastructure. So it's a sort of horses for courses uh, approach. This, by the way, is, is not a, a unique to Bangladesh situation. It, it's the same problem that the River Rhine in Europe does has and the River Mississippi in the U.S. has. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers have embanked the entire Mississippi, and and that sometimes causes even greater floods because when you offer protection and then that protection breaches, then the damage can be much bigger than if you didn't offer protection in the first place.
3: One of the problems people have raised about the situation in America is that there's been a lot of building on floodplains, a lot of development. Is that problem shared in Dhaka?
4: Absolutely. That's the same problem in Dhaka. We've built in places where we shouldn't have been building, um, and that's made the problem more acute. We've we've filled up what used to be uh, wetlands within the Dhaka, uh, greater Dhaka area. And so when we do have very heavy rains, there's nowhere for the water to go, and it floods the roads, and the roads become rivers. Uh, these are man-made problems. and And again, this is not just Bangladesh. This is a similar problem
3: around the world. And are there plans in Bangladesh to try and change that?
4: There's a lot of discussion. It's not easy to change to it, but you can, you can stop doing bad things. In fact, we do have uh, legislation that, that prevents building on wetlands, but then, you know, a lot of things get done even though they're not supposed to be done. And, and so it's not that we need new, new and better policies. We have them, but we need to implement them better than we've been able to implement them so far
3: and the worst of the destruction and the deaths recently what was that due to
4: usually what happens with flood deaths they uh, are associated more with snake bites people you know wading through water there are uh, poisonous snakes in the water and and very often people will get bitten by these snakes so quite often the the deaths due to floods are result of snake bite more than anything else uh in bangladesh because we are downstream of the major river so we know we know when the water is coming and and one of the biggest problems associated with flooding is less as i said deaths but it is disease so as the water now starts to recede it's all it's very uh, dirty water so you know it's full of sewage and so people um will get contaminated water ingest in contaminated water and start getting diarrhea and di- diarrheal diseases although Having said that, again, Bangladesh is actually very well adapted to that. Bangladesh is now known not to, you know, be careful about getting fresh, clean drinking water, be prepared for diarrheal, uh, onsets. But the damage is still there, as I said. You know, the damage to property, damage to crops, damage, these are quite severe and, and recovering and repairing will cost a lot of money.
3: And in terms of providing that, the extra support that's needed, Obviously, the city governments and national government is doing a lot. But I know you work a lot with the international community. What is your view in terms of how the international community should be responding?
4: Sure. So a little bit of background and then I'll, I'll answer your question. So the background is, as I said, the floods are not unknown. Floods are natural. So the, it's, it's the responsibility of the country's government and authorities to look after their own citizens and Bangladesh tries to do that. Bangladesh being a poor country often doesn't have enough money to do it and the the global community very often comes to our assistance. So We get lots of charity coming in from developed countries and NGOs like Oxfam and CARE and others working and they're all working here. Everybody's out in the field right now helping people. So that's sort of like a natural phenomenon without climate change factoring in. However, now with climate change factoring in, and namely human-induced climate change, it means that the severity of this event is no longer a 100% natural event. There is an element of human-induced contribution which is not zero anymore. It, we don't know how much it is. We don't know whether it's 10% or 20% or 1%, but it's not zero. And therefore, the intensity of the event, not the event itself, I mean, the event would have happened without climate change, but it would not have been so severe. It's the same argument for Hurricanes, Irma and Harvey. And so it's the contribution of climate change to making the event worse than it otherwise would have been, that now introduces this element of man-made causation, which didn't exist before. And so if we accept that there is this man-made causation, then there is a responsibility for those who cause the problem of pollution of greenhouse gases to provide some kind of compensation or support. In the climate change negotiations, we call this loss and damage. The, the, The impacts are called loss and damage because of climate change. And what we, the poor countries, are asking for, and I, I, uh, that's what I work on and uh, bring forward in these negotiations, is this uh, demand for compensation. So we need to shift from what the paradigm we used to have before, which is charity. You know, we're poor people, we're suffering, help, and then people would help, we'd get charity. But now it's more, it's beyond charity. Now it's you cause the problem and you need to be helping us solve the problem and cope with the problem. There's an element of responsibility which doesn't come with charity. It's now polluter pay principle. We're moving from a charity paradigm to a polluter pay paradigm. And the polluters are both rich countries who have caused the problem, but also companies like the fossil fuel companies who've made huge profits out of causing pollution. And so the demand now is for these countries and companies to be held responsible and at the very least to be providing some compensation from the profits that they've been made.
3: And a big step forward on that was taken at COP21. Could you describe what has been agreed so far and also how how far there is still to go?
4: This issue of uh, loss and damage, as I mentioned in the negotiations, is a highly politically contentious issue. In fact, one of the reasons why it isn't called liability and compensation, which it is, underlying the notion, as I said, is because the very words "liability" and "compensation" are taboo for the developed countries. They didn't allow us to use those words. So instead, they they agreed to us using the words "loss and damage," and that took a battle. So we we finally we, we managed to get in Article Eight of the Paris Agreement. It is an article addressing loss and damage. So that the principle of loss and damage has been accepted. The need to address it has been accepted. Now the question is, what do we do about it? And that's where we're going to push forward in the next conference of parties, which is in November in Germany, which is going to be presided over by the Prime Minister of Fiji, who has made this a big issue. So he has already stated that he wants the next conference of parties to focus on implementing this part of the Paris Agreement and actually addressing the issue of compensation and liability and basically untaboo this topic what do you think is the best possible outcome that could be achieved in germany the the outcome that needs to be achieved and i think is even now given the events that have happened both the asian the south asian floods and even more uh, importantly the events in the united states is that the recognition that this is no longer a topic that can be you know swept under the carpet there is damage somebody has to pay for the damage the interestingly you know in in the united states of america this is actually an accepted principle. So what is going to happen right now is that the state of Texas and the city of Houston are going to make damage assessments of how much monetary loss they had. And they're actually going to send a bill for loss and damage to Congress and ask Congress for the estimates right now are in the order of $100 billion for Texas and $100 billion for Florida, for Irma. And then Congress will discuss this. And in the end, Congress will give them money. So this principle of providing compensation from the higher levels of uh, government to the lower levels of government is quite well established within hierarchical governments, provinces and federal governments, for example. Now, what we want to do is to extend this principle to the global level. If the countries that are hit can't cope, can't manage, then there's a global responsibility to provide them with compensation after the event. Mm -hmm
3: how would it be established whether the country can't manage
4: well at the moment it the country just makes an appeal and people and, and others give them money uh, you know the world bank the development banks the uh, the bilateral aid agencies like dfid in the united kingdom or usaid in the us this is quite traditional right? it happens all the time but they do that under the under the paradigm of charity these are aid agencies providing aid to help with reconstruction after an event the un framework convention is not an aid it's not a, a development agency, it's a pollution treaty. The reason we have the Framework Convention is to deal with the pollution problem, the emissions of greenhouse gases which are causing problems. And so under a pollution treaty, the principle then becomes a polluter pays principle. We need to adopt that, we need to find ways of assigning responsibility to polluters and for polluters to then contribute to funds to uh, provide uh, assistance to those that result. Again this principle is not new it's been applied for example in the case of oil spills from tankers in the high seas there's a a global protocol where all the oil tanker companies put money into a global fund that can be used for compensating any person or place or country that is harmed uh, the coastline particularly by an oil spill by a passing tanker so you don't have to go and catch the tanker that spilled the oil that caused the damage on your beach you can go to this fund and say just show them the damage that has been caused and then they'll get compensation for it this is a mechanism that has been already set up some years ago so these are not unprecedented issues that we can't solve we need to apply these principles more urgently in the case of climate change now the Basically, what has happened in 2017 with the floods in South Asia and the hurricanes in, in the Atlantic and Caribbean is added urgency to have to deal with this problem. We, we used to think this is something that will come in the future. We need to start planning for it. But we, but now, you know, as of 2017, the time for planning has passed. The time for doing it has come.
2: So this is all getting very depressing, to be honest. Like, give, give me a reason to be cheerful. What can we actually do about any of this stuff? Is there something cities can do to sort of prepare themselves for, for the worst?
3: That is, there is... Um Thankfully, a, a report from Cities One called Cities One Hundred came out this week, and they have a hundred examples of how cities are adapting to climate change, how they're you know, preparing for the worst, but also trying to reduce their own contribution to CO two emissions.
2: Okay, so there's really two sides to this. There's kind of this, so the resilience of the infrastructure, and there's actually exactly. reducing emissions, exactly. basically. And
3: there's so there's so many different ways cities are doing it, and one of the most I thought the hopeful things about the whole report was there were so many examples where the initiatives are really taking into account people on low incomes. How do you make new technology like electric cars, you know, available and accessible to everyone? Um, how do you make sure everyone's involved? Should I run you through a couple? All
2: right, yeah. Give us a couple of examples. What 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 inspired you here?
3: So At the kind of extreme end of American level, Silicon Valley level organisation, you've got San Francisco in America, and they now require large commercial buildings to audit their energy savings and to report their energy usage every year. And that means 468 municipal buildings have cut their carbon emissions by more than 30 percent. And in the private sector, I think there's been a 10 percent reduction in electricity usage in upgraded buildings. And the reporting requirements have created jobs, and the whole thing is likely to expand. So it's one example of building a whole new sector around something that is, you know, good for the city.
2: I find that interesting, just this kind of phenomenon of what is measured moves. You come across that phrase. Well, like if you're kind of paying attention to a particular number you're much more likely to be able to improve it just because everyone's looking at it
3: exactly yeah Yeah. exactly you need to know
2: you need to know the mesh you're making to be able to clear it up basically (laughs) exactly okay what else she got
3: so the other end in america new orleans which was hit obviously very badly by hurricane katrina is um has since invested in its most vulnerable neighborhoods they've have an emergency account program which creates emergency funds for for a disaster response if if something like that hit again and they match financial savings for low and moderate income earners and it's also invested in green infrastructure so something a lot of cities have done is invest in creating more parks and cities which both act as you know things that can really just make people's lives nicer when when the floods aren't around but then when the flood waters do come it's, it's space for the, for that flood water to go and be absorbed into the soil instead of instead of running off the roads and concrete in the development which which causes a lot of the problems with flooding
2: yeah and no, again this is quite a common problem is very heavily developed cities you often end up with with there just not being much absorbent ground around That's so, so by ensuring there's there's green space you not only kind of have this have it for leisure utility it's also better for the environment because it will just absorb flood waters should they come.
3: exactly exactly and then at the other end of the the climate scale when you've got extreme heat which is equally as as life-threatening as as flood uh mexico city is harvesting its rainwater So it can reduce pressure on its uh, groundwater and aquifer systems and make sure there's drinking water for everyone. And they've done this by um, creating nearly 500 harvesting devices and water purification devices. And um, the program is also being installed and maintained by women who've suffered domestic violence. So it's creating jobs for these women, creating ways out, which just seems like a very thoughtful and linked up thing to do.
2: Yeah, it's interesting how many of these these approaches are kind of bringing in that sort of more social element or this basically sort of infrastructure programme.
3: The truly hopeful thing is in being if being faced with a problem as, as vast as climate change, you are forced to think about how people are, are vulnerable in all kinds of ways. So if solutions can be made to work on multiple levels, that's just all to the good.
2: That's a cheery note to end on. I don't think we're going to find another cheery note in this particular (laughs) subject. So we'll see you next time.
0: Hold up.